Why are we here? I mean, why do we exist? Why am I here? Why are you here? For what purpose did God create mankind? And what vocation, if any, did he give us? Did he assign us? What job does he have for us to do? Those are all existential questions that all of us, at some point in time, will ask or have asked. And we've come up with some answers. The Westminster Catechism tells us that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Lauren Cunningham, the founder of YWAM, has said is to know God and to make him known. Others have told us that God created mankind for sons and daughters who would of their own free will spend their lives worshiping him. And these are all good answers. And they're all, they're all some truth to it. But I think there's, there's a more to it. Um, there's more to why we're here. And some of that, some of that what does it mean to glorify God and join forever? Does that mean that's just to be here and worship God forever? The way we individually figure out how I glorify God, how you glorify God, is going to be somewhat determined on certain beliefs that we hold. And they're big words. Um, The first one is what we believe about man. Our anthropology. It would include our existence, our purpose, and anthropology would also include the study of cultures. It also, our eschatology comes into play in answering why are we here, what are we to do. And I can't stand the possibility of misspelling a word in front of people. Also, what is our cosmology? Cosmology, well, eschatology, let me back up, is the study of the end times. We know that word. Our cosmology, what is, where does the universe fit into all this? Its origin and its eventual fate. And finally, there are probably others... When I started this line of thinking a couple years ago, I only had a couple, and I've added each time. Another one is our soteriology. Soteriology is basically our doctrine of salvation, what we believe about salvation. So now, what all these, how, how these answer our questions? Well, if our eschatology is centered around going to heaven someday when we die, it's going to affect all the other three. Let me keep this on. It's going to affect our anthropology, because if our eschatology says that our goal is to go to heaven when we die, then mankind isn't good enough to get there. And in this worldview, I'm going to present this one worldview kind of, if I'm not good enough to get there, and in this paradigm, heaven is far off, it's a distant place, and earth is just somewhere place, and we've got to figure out how to get across that wide divide between heaven and earth, and we can't. Mankind's not good enough. So God decides to kill his son, sends him, and then he kills him so that he forgives our sins so then we can go to heaven when we die. So these are all these ideas in here. And it's not that there's, they're not true. Well, except the part about God killing Jesus. There's an element of truth to all of them. But I want to suggest to you that they're a very small part of a grander picture. So, let me ask you a question. In the garden, why did God create man? Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So, that was another one, but before he said that, he says, so that they may rule. So that they may rule. So it seems like in the garden, God created us for dominion. 
And part of that dominion and authority and rule was to be fruitful, multiply. And there was a creative aspect to it. Adam's first act of dominion was naming the animals. This wasn't just necessary, well, you're a tiger, you're a lion, you're an elephant. That act of naming was assigning a nature, an essence. It was a creative act that involved a lot of intelligence. But he was joining with God to create what this animal would be. So I would suggest also that we are, it was to rule and it was to co-create. Now we know the whole story. We know in the garden, man blew it, ate the fruit, got kicked out of the garden. Now according to the first paradigm that I talked about, if our goal is to go to heaven, and that's always been God's goal, why did he create the earth? If his goal was for him to have worshipers in heaven, then why create the earth at all? Is the earth just some, to borrow the words of our president, a refugee holding facility? A migrant camp where we're kind of held between two worlds. This isn't really our home. Eventually we're going to get to heaven. That's our real home. We're only passing through. It's all going to burn anyway. And if the earth is so temporary, why did he create it if our whole goal was to go to heaven? I want to paint a different answer, a larger, I should say, to those three belief systems. When our eschatology is based on the idea that God is attempting to unite heaven and earth, that he wants a creation where heaven and earth coexist, and he creates mankind to rule and have dominion in that creation. And it's not just... Let me back up. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I won't worry about it. So if that affects our anthropology, because I'm not just here. I'm, I'm here for a purpose, to, to rule, to have dominion, to create with God, to expand this creation that he has set into place, that he has created. And heaven, we find that heaven isn't some distant place. Heaven is wherever you go, wherever I go. Heaven is there. I bump into heaven where it's not some distant place. Heaven coexists with earth. We also find that in the first mindset, if if our goal is to get to heaven, then what's our vocation? Our job here is basically to win souls to get to heaven. That's That's our sole responsibility. But if we begin to think of this in a grander scheme, that God is uniting heaven and earth in this beautiful, wonderful creation then our vacation becomes being representing him. In the garden, we are image bearers. According to this first paradigm, God created us to rule, but then we blew it. Did he give up on that plan then? Figure, well, they're not going to really do what I wanted them to do, so I'll just figure out a way to get them up here in heaven with us. And so I'll let them live there for a while. They're going to mess everything up. It's going to get worse. But one day, someday, I'm just going to go down, I'm going to rescue them out, and then I'll finish what I really wanted them to do. I'll fix all the mess that they made. See, this isn't that first paradigm. But in the second paradigm, God is making this new creation, this earth, this uniting of heaven and earth. And our job is to to work with him, to co-create, to co-rule with him, expanding that creation all over the world. So where does our soteriology come into it? Well, the idea of salvation, that Jesus died on the cross to save our sins, is true. But it's bigger than that. If my view is that God is making a new creation, then my salvation view is that the cross provided not only forgiveness, but victory over sin and a restoration of the authority that Adam lost so that now we can again have dominion over this new creation, enabling us to live as he originally created 
fully functioning, fully image-bearing human beings representing him to the world, taking on that vocation of uniting with him in this creation of the new heavens and new earth, gloriously described in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and 22. Like I said, according to this first worldview, man blew it, so God says, well, they really can't have dominion, I'm going to bring them up to heaven. But in the second one, rather than set into motion a means of getting man to heaven, he set into motion a means of recreating the earth. So in the first creation, he gives man dominion, man blows it, so he sets into motion a means of recreating a new heavens, a new earth, totally new creation, Jesus goes to the cross, goes down and and invades hell, plunders hell, and regains the authority. The second Adam regains the authority and dominion that the first Adam lost. And he regains it. That's an atonement theory known as Christus Victor. In a small nutshell, there's more to it than that. So this second Adam regains the authority and dominion. And what does he do? One of his, his last meal with his disciples, he says, I confer upon you a kingdom. That word kingdom is basilea, and it means rule, authority, dominion. So our salvation message is based on this eschatological view of a new heavens and a new earth, and mankind is to be fully involved in ruling and reigning. We blew it. But our salvation is that Jesus died and restored to us authority, dominion, and restored to us our position. And that enables us to fully live out our vocation of spreading his glory and the knowledge of him all over the earth, advancing this kingdom all over the earth. There's, um, I've found that we have a tendency, I'm going to look at time, I found that we have a tendency that we can hear good things, and we tuck it into our pocket, and it could sit side by side with a coexist, coexisting a belief that they're really contradictory. And so we can find ourselves holding on to two contradictory beliefs with equal dogma because we haven't really examined the two in light of each other. What I want to get to is our responsibility to carry the kingdom culture. But if you're still stuck in this original mindset, we're only going to heaven, it's all temporary, you don't have the, we, we, we won't have the same drive. We're going to look at the deterioration of the world as, well, that's going to happen anyway because that's the sign of the end times. We won't have the same perseverance. But if you realize that God really wants to partner with us, uh, us he wants us to do here on earth what he, we can't do without him and what he won't do without us. And it gives us a sense of responsibility to join him in that. But we also need to know that the kingdom is already here. Almost 200 years ago, a belief system took off, but it took about 100 years to take off. They gave the church the idea that the kingdom age is, in, is far in the future. But the kingdom has already come. This new creation that God set in the motion came when Christ came to the earth. And how do I know this? Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 both give different pictures. The one, Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue, you know this, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, legs of bronze, and a feet of clay and, and iron. And Daniel 7, it gives the same picture. It uses apocalyptic pictures of animals, but it's representing four kingdoms. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and Rome. 
And in both of those things, the kingdom invades at that point where Rome was, where Jesus came. And that in, in Daniel 2, that kingdom came as a rock made from a mountain, not made by human hands, and it crushed the kingdoms of this world and then grew into a mountain that engulfed the world. In Daniel 7, we see the fifth kingdom led by the Son of Man, who is then given glory and opinion, opinion, yeah, he has opinions, dominion and authority and a kingdom that's everlasting that can never be destroyed. So if we go through those prophecies, we know that the kingdom came when Jesus came and it came as a mustard seed that grew and became the largest plant in the garden. It's like leaven and bread. So we have all these ideas, these metaphors in the Bible to let us know the kingdom is here. It's the world is not deteriorating. The kingdom is growing and we have a responsibility to bring that kingdom wherever we go. Luke records Jesus saying, they say the kingdom's there, they say the kingdom's there. I say the kingdom is within you. So we can, we can rest in this one worldview and think, well, I'll just win some souls to heaven. Or we can realize, and that's it. We need to do that. That's part of the picture. I find when, that, when I'm limited to just winning souls to heaven, I feel like a failure most of the time. But when I realize that my job here is to spread the culture of heaven, I can spread the culture of heaven every single day. Amen. Every encounter can be an encounter with the culture of heaven. So our vocation then, I've already listed the one in Luke 22. Jesus says, I confer upon you a kingdom, and that is rule, dominion, kingship, authority. But be forewarned, and I'm going to get to this, this is not a dominion and a taking rule and authority as the world does. It's a servant-based authority. And 1 Peter Am I talking too fast? 1 Peter 2 gives us another part of our vocation. And that is that we are priests. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. What do priests do? Priests stand in between heaven and earth, uniting, representing man to God and representing God to man. And that's our vocation here on earth. N.T. Wright puts it this the way, that we humans are called to stand at the intersection of heaven and earth, holding in our hearts, our praises, and our urgent intercessions the wisdom of the creator God and the terrible torments of this created world. And so we bring that and we represent him wherever we go as priests. That is an awesome responsibility. And I'm thinking of awesome almost more in the archaic sense that it's heavy, not, oh, that's cool. Let's go back to the old, old, more of an old English view. So we are rulers, we have to have authority, we are priests, and we bear his image. We are image bearers. When people look at me, I'm representing God. Now that's terrifying to me at times. But I, also, I, I, I know that I have within me the, the potential that every person I meet gets to meet God. That their culture that they're living in is going to be interrupted or disrupted by the kingdom culture that I carry within my heart. And so we become, with this second worldview, fully into this. This is, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to bear his image. And we're going to end up being world changers 
One of, I think one of the greatest compliments in the New Testament of the apostles is where their criticism was. These guys are changing the world. May that be something leveled against me. This lady is changing the world. And when we bear his image, when we know that that kingdom culture is in us, we're going to disrupt the culture. And this is, the, I'm already halfway done, but this is really what, the meat of what I wanted to get across. The, the, we're going to talk a little bit about cultures. If we're going to disrupt culture, we're going to have to know what a culture is how to sustain it, and how to disrupt it, and what it looks like, what your culture you want to bring. Culture, is, they say, is one of the most difficult words to define. And if you think about it, the one thing I read was any intellectual material that expresses a certain generation, kind of, or um, a culture is all of the stuff that bodies and communicates the social traditions of a, of a group of people. But if you think about it, I have a culture. Our family has a certain culture. The church has a culture. The Mennonites have a certain subculture within Christendom, but Greenwood Mennonite is an even more narrow culture within the broader Mennonite subculture. And we have to be really careful that I don't mistake the kingdom of heaven for my culture. That I don't equate the Greenwood Mennonite culture with Christian culture. Because then my goal in disrupting the the other cultures is to make them like me not to make them like Jesus. And we want to bring the kingdom culture. And sometimes that involves letting go of my own culture. If we want to disrupt a culture, so I'm going to, I'm going to make a circle here. I borrowed this. There's always something a little bit nerve-wracking when part of your message is somebody else's message that you're trying to repeat, but I'll do the best I can. Uh, Jonathan Welton had a dream one time of this circle. And I'm, this is supposed to be quadrants. I'm not an artist. And there are percentages here. I'm not really worried about the percentages. But anyway. And up here, we're going to write experience. And I'm going to write it in shorthand, just quick. And then we have a, a period of validation. And here he saw the word belief system. And then Culture. Another word for culture is lifestyle. It's an accent. You don't think about an accent until you're in a different country and you think about their accent. And a culture is kind of, kind of like that. Okay? So I'm going to use a couple examples here. Every culture starts with an experience. We're afraid of experience, but every culture starts with an experience. In the 1500s, there was a young monk crawling on his hands and knees up a set of steps, and halfway up those steps, he heard a voice say, the just shall live by faith. It was Martin Luther. And he heard that voice. It was an experience with God, and then he set out to validate that experience, to figure that out, and he developed a whole belief system and a culture that transformed Christendom, the Protestant Reformation. You and I... Our, our specific dominate, denomination, and we would come from the Anabaptists, are was affected by his culture. Okay? So you have an experience, and this is not going to work. That's why they turned it off. Uh, oh, well. I won't be having this. There we go. It starts an experience. We have this supernatural experience that we then seek to validate how many of us here are raised in a Christian culture that didn't either talked against or didn't really teach the baptism of the Holy Spirit with tongues? A lot of us have. I, ha- I, w- I was. Okay? And then, so uh, my, cult, my current culture was 
uh, it wasn't necessarily against the gifts, but practically speaking, we were against the gifts. We were scared of them. So that was my current culture. Well, then I have an experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and having someone pray with me over tongues, and it, it, was, it, it was dropped into this experience that the gifts weren't for today, or at least I'd never seen them, and now i got to figure out what to do with this. So then I moved to this stage of digging into the scriptures, and I read Acts, and I find out it's all throughout. I see, I see it's, it's normal. And not only is it all throughout Acts, Paul tells us to earnestly desire these things. I'm like, what? Where have we missed this? Why are we not? How can we say we're believing the Bible when we're not earnestly following this in this area? So I had to go through this validation system. Now, this, this um, diagram that... Jonathan dreamt up. He talked with ethnographers, and he read a whole bunch of cultural anthropology books, and he couldn't find it. And ethnographers, those who specialize in studying culture, said they have never seen this diagram, but this series of steps is true to the development and the sustaining of cultures. So it's not just something pulled off. We have an experience, then we seek to validate it, and this is the tipping point. Because I've had this experience with the supernatural power of God, and I'm finding that it's true in the Bible, but then I start thinking, wait a minute here. If I really make this part of my belief system, it changes some things. There's going to be some relationships that are seriously altered that I might lose. I might have to change the churches. There are some ideas that I thought I held that I'm going to have to let go of. That really changes some things. And sometimes the cost is too great and so we decide not to move and make it a belief system. But sometimes it becomes part of our belief system. So now it's part of my belief system that I believe in healing. And I want to pray for healing. I think that Christ, the wounds that he suffered brought our healing. But it hasn't quite made it into my culture. Because what makes it into your culture, it's like breathing. I was, in a, I was at a training this, a couple weekends ago. And 30 to 40 people were there. And almost everybody there prayed for healing for me. It, because it's part of their culture. You don't, have, you don't have to think about it. It's like, I have to put on an English accent, and it would be horrible if I tried to. But if I'm an Englishman, that's my culture. That's just natural. When my belief in the supernatural gifts moves from here to here, it's going to be part of my culture. I, don't, I won't even think about it. I'll be praying for healing. I'll be prophesying over people. When I, it, it'll be just as natural as breathing to me. So we have this here. Um, when we're building a culture, we move this way around it, okay? If we want to sustain a culture, we can't stop. And that's the scary part because we have this idea that experience is bad and that if you have an experience, that's going to make you weird. We can be weird without an experience. Amen. And there are times that an experience leads us to a culture that's a lie, this is why I think Sozo is so powerful. It doesn't go to the belief system. It, doesn't, it goes right back to that experience. The experience that interrupted your life that caused you to begin to believe things that then became part of your culture. So if you stop moving around it because you're straight afraid of experience and you've got enough, you've no more validating your belief system, you're comfortable with it, you're going to stagnate. If you're very anti-experience, let me remind you, your eternal destiny, if you're a Christian, you have based your entire eternal destiny on a supernatural experience. If you're a believer in Christ, you already believe in at least one supernatural experience. And if you don't believe that's a supernatural experience, I would suggest you rethink some things. 
Because being born again is a supernatural experience. Now, typically in the past, when we have tried to bring our culture to the cultures of the world, we've gone culture against culture. We picket. We boycott. We argue. Or we do belief system against belief system. I bring my beliefs against your beliefs, and that's apologetic. So you've got an atheist and a Christian believing, arguing about the existence of God. Or another way we'll do it is we'll go to the, the validation. This is, if you would just read the books I've read, here, let me give you this book. And if, you, if you're really open to hearing the truth, you'll read this book and you'll change your mind. Or we, article versus article. One from the New York Times and one from Fox or one from CNN and one from American Review. You know, you got all these, we just, we just all, my, all, all the stuff that I've validated my belief, I'll hand to you. And obviously, if you're really open, you're going to come over to my way of seeing things. Problem is, these things very rarely work. But what does work is that right there. When you have a culture that you carry and you drop an experience into somebody else's culture, it gives them the opportunity to go around this circle again. And I believe that this is why the enemy keeps us so scared of experience because he knows we can argue this all we want. And he knows that a man argued into the kingdom can be argued out of it just as easily. But a man with an experience is never at the mercy of someone with an only an argument. So we drop our experience into someone's life and it wrecks them and they got to think about it and they start to validate it. Bill Vanderbush describes this. In, he's, he was uh, at a church service, he was preaching and he was talking to a guy before the service and the guy says he's an atheist and Bill says, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what do you mean? What do I mean by that? I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And Bill said, well, God believes in you. And then he walked away. Just said, well, God believes in you. He went up and preached, and this gentleman came up to receive Christ, didn't hear any of his message, but that one statement, God believes in you, that based on Bill's experience, just a simple statement is natural, no big deal. Well, God believes in you. Dropped into that man's life, and it transformed him because that was an experience. It wasn't anything real big. Bill could have argued the belief system. He could have started arguing about science and history and all this other stuff to try to prove God is real, but he didn't. He didn't try to bring out things, articles. and st- He just said, well, God believes in you. A simple statement that disrupted the man's culture. And it gave that young man, I don't know how old he was, an encounter with the reality of who God is. And it changed his life. When we pit experience against experience, God always wins. Think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Think of Moses and Pharaoh. Think of Christianity in the Muslim world today. 70 to 100,000 Muslims are coming to Christ every day, and the majority of them because they are encountering a supernatural God. They're having an experience. So now, we understand this, the culture and how we need to, need to disrupt it. We need to understand the culture we're bringing. And there are some markers, I think, of the culture we're bringing. But understand that these markers, they can't be just an experience. They can't be just part of our validation process. or our belief. They need to be part of our culture. The number one marker of the kingdom culture, the culture of heaven, is a lifestyle of love. I'm not just talking about any kind of love. We understand love. We think the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's old covenant law. Because this is the summary of the law and the prophets. 
That's not new covenant love. New covenant love is love your enemies, but not just love your enemies. Love them as Christ loved them. John 13, another statement that Jesus said in his final meal with the disciples, as he is partaking in the covenant meal, getting ready to go to the cross as a sacrifice to institute the new covenant, he says, a new command I give you, love each other as I have loved you. He said that in the midst of breaking covenant with 12 men who would either betray him, deny him, or forsake him. That's the kind of love we're talking about, a love that holds nothing back. This dominion we're supposed to take, everybody's scared of this idea of Christians taking dominion because it's been done before. Uh, Hello, think crusades. We're used to that style of dominion, force, subjugation, one arm against the other arm. We, we We love people whose words have bite to them, who say what they mean, who carry a big stick. All these ideals we have of authority. Because that's what we've learned through history. But it's not what we've learned through the Bible. In the Bible, we see a kingdom, that culture, where the king came as a baby. The lion of Judah actually was a lamb. This is a kingdom in which if you want to be great, you become a servant. If you want to be wealthy, you give everything away. If you want to really live, you decide to die. If, let me get it right. This is, one, this is a kingdom that offers forgiveness rather than vengeance. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth may have been good in that day, but it's not good for new covenant love anymore. It's not a standard of the culture of heaven anymore. Forgiveness is. The new covenant culture, the kingdom culture, offers a grace so freely that's so powerful that transforms lives. And a love that's given so sacrificially that it can pierce the, the strongest of hatreds. This is the culture we're supposed to bring. This is a love we are to exhibit. And I'm not just talking about experiencing love or validating it. And we can believe all we want here in this thing here that, yes, this all sounds good, but it has to become a part of our culture. A love that holds nothing back. A love that sacrifices everything. And a love that would rather die than to see its enemies killed. I'm sorry, as I say this, that's not my culture yet. But when that becomes part of our culture, it will disrupt the world. When that's the kind of authority and rule and dominion the church exhibits, it drops into a world that's used to lording it over authority, authority that means you submit to me. And it disrupts everything. They don't know what to do with it. And they got to think about it. And they're going to start walking around the circle because the love that we carry is so different than anything they've ever experienced. Another marker of the kingdom culture, the kingdom culture of heaven, is it's a power, a supernatural power. If we say to follow Christ, and we say we believe what the Bible says and we want to live by it, and we don't seek to walk in the supernatural, that's hypocritical. I don't mean to be harsh. I took away one qualifier that I've heard, a bizarre form of hypocrisy. If we think that we can advance this supernatural kingdom with natural ways, we are already deceived. Don't even worry about whether we're the experience or not. We're already deceived. It's a supernatural kingdom. It's a kingdom that's not seen with our natural eyes, but seen with our spiritual eyes. And it it comes with a power. And there's a power that we're going to, miraculous signs are going to follow those who believe. Now, when I say that, am I saying that every time I, Pray for healing. Somebody's going to get healed. Every time I prophesy, it's going to happen. No. 
It hasn't yet. And I think for me anyway, because I said it's not part of my culture yet. So if I'm experiencing a lot of failure in my prophecies or healings, I'm not experiencing it. And I think miraculous signs are supposed to follow those who believe. Well, what's going on? I'm going to look at this. Where am I in this circle? Because I guarantee once supernatural is part of my lifestyle, like living and breathing, like an accent that I don't have to put on, I guarantee there's going to be signs following. But as an encouragement, some people get really nervous on the idea of practicing prophecy and just praying for healing and just seeing what... But practicing takes you from experience all the way around to the culture of lifestyle. If you decide you're not going to get... If you decide you don't really want to practice, you're stuck somewhere in this quadrant here. If you want prophecy to become part of your lifestyle, your culture, so whenever you meet someone, the kingdom culture that you bring comes out through prophetic words, and that person knows because of what you've said that God sees them, he loves them, and he cares about what they're going through. And when that's part of your... Just natural is breathing. It's part of your lifestyle. You're going to see... A lot of increase, but in order to get a lot of increase in accuracy, but in order to get there, you're going to have to start, we have to walk through this here. If you want to stagnate, just stop anywhere on that. The kingdom, this supernatural power that's within us, when it's dropped into somebody else's world, when you give them a prophetic word that there's no way you could have known naturally, and you heard it from God, they're like, he sees me, he knows me, he cares, there's hope. And it disrupts their world. Gives them an experience that they can then choose whether they're going to go around and if it's going to change their culture. Um, I'm running out of time. I'm actually out of time. Um, So, a couple things here. The early Anabaptists, they broke off from the Protestant Reformation. They were known as the radicals in the land because they decided that they were going to live what the Bible said. It was going to be real to them. That what happened in Acts and the Sermon on the Mount, that was going to be real. They knew it was real, and they were going to go after it. And they ended up being persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants because of it. Because they chose to make Acts and the Sermon on the Mount part of their lifestyle. And the other cultures around them couldn't handle it. They were also known as hard workers, and they contribute a lot to... The, the, the secular society. So another country, and I can't remember what it is, somebody else might remember, said, well, hey, why don't you come move here? We'll give you some space. You can have your own colony as long as you don't proselytize. And they did. And it was Russia. Thank you. And this is when the radicals became known as the quiet in the land. Now I want to ask you, are you here to be a radical and disrupt culture or do you want to be in the quiet land? Because if you want to disrupt culture, you're going to have to get out of your culture. It's going to take time, investment. If you want to be in the quiet land, fine. Just stay in your own little community and just be your own little people and don't worry about it. Oh, you can visit over here once in a while and witness and win souls. That's fine. But if you want to disrupt culture, you've got to know that culture. You've got to be involved in them. You've got to be with them. You've got to form relationships. And you've got to be able to contextualize your experience and your beliefs to meet them. This is why Paul said, when I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, and a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. This is why he polemically criticized people for circumcising new believers, but he circumcised Timothy. Why? Because all things are beneficial, but not all things are helpful. Whatever is helpful for me to disrupt this person's person's culture, that's what I'm going to do. 
And if it means I need to shed part of what I hold and value, not dogma, but if I have to step away from my culture and develop another accent to reach that person, by golly, I will because I want the kingdom culture spread. I don't want my culture spread. I don't really care if my culture is spread. I want kingdom culture spread. I want people to know Jesus. I don't want them to know me. I want them to know what Jesus stands for. I want them to know what the kingdom brings. I don't want them to know what it means to be a Mennonite. And if I think I have, if I finished my job because they do all the things that I've learned how to do over the last 50 years, but they haven't learned to be like Jesus, then I've failed. We have to commit to bringing this culture of heaven that resides in us and bringing it in whatever way possible. In every moment, whether we're work at a sports bar, teach at a public school, in a fast food restaurant, whether we're a nurse in the ER, whether we're a stay-at-home mom, whatever we are, wherever you are, you carry the kingdom within you and you can disrupt culture by bringing your experience to that person's experience and being willing to do it, being willing to follow, even if you have to follow that person all the way around the circle. Get rid of everything in your culture that you can get rid of to reach this culture. Are you willing to do that? Or do you want to stand over here? Do you want to be like the Anabaptists who are radicals? Or do you want to be like the Anabaptists who are the quiet in the land? Because they were happy. They were able to grow, they were multiply, but they were only a colony inside of Russia. And all they're known for is being quiet in the land. They, they, they weren't known as world changers. I want to be a world changer. I don't know about you. We sing it with passion. We pray it. Heaven, fall down. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just heaven come. Let heaven come. We pray it and we sing it. But do you want to be a part of bringing it? Amen. If we pray for heaven to pour out, are you willing for it to pour out through you? Are you willing to be the agent that God is able to bring the culture of heaven to the culture of the people around you. Tim. So, uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you. Uh, you're, you're trying to show us something here, and I'm asking that you would give us the ability to process with you. What does it mean for us to um, Relate to you, God, in such a way that it's transformed our culture. Relate to your truth so deeply that it's become like breathing. And not view our job to be at war with the culture around us, but to be disrupting it through sneaky ways of servanthood and love. Teach us these things, God. Um, Give us a heart of love and honor that is even aimed at our enemies. Give us a heart of um, covenant keeping that is aimed at those who are mistreating us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you would like prayer, please come forward.